podcast about product management, user experience design, technology, and more. This is Product by Design. All right, welcome to another episode of Product by Design. I am Kyle, and today I'm very excited to have a special guest, uh, Mark Taylor, with me. Welcome uh, to the podcast, Mark. Thank you. Mark is, let me, I will introduce Mark really quickly, and then Mark, you can jump in and fill in any gaps uh, with with this. But Mark, you are an independent IT consultant, and you've been doing that for for a while, and you have almost 30 years of experience in software development. So this is, I'm super excited to talk because I, you know, I think we've got a lot of things to talk about. You are also the host of the Better ROI from Software Development Podcast. So not unfamiliar with podcasting yourself, which is a very interesting short weekly podcast for non-technical leaders struggling with their traditional management techniques, which I love. I've been listening to to some of the episodes from this podcast, and it's absolutely great. So we'll link that in the show notes because it's it's a super good podcast that I think echoes a lot of the same things that we talk about on our podcast as well. But with that, Mark, uh, why don't you introduce yourself and, and tell us a little bit more about yourself? Thank you, Carl. Um, so yeah, I've been in software development around it for the last almost thirty years. I took the normal tract of uh, starting off as, as a software developer and then as any decent software developer you got pushed into management <laughs> um, and I found and while I enjoyed working with people and teams and leadership what I found was I was getting further and further away from the code um, so moving back into a consultancy model allows me now to be able to be closer to code rather than running teams and being 24-7 in meetings so I really enjoy that aspect of it really enjoy and I've benefited in my career of being able to do lots and lots of different things. And I like to take that into both my consultancy work and into my other activities, such as the podcasting. Uh, as you say, podcast is, uh, is, I think we're up to about 104 episodes now, um, fairly short episodes uh, aimed at trying to help sort of managers, non-technical managers, struggling to understand why they're getting the best from any investment they're putting into software development. Um, unfortunately, we're probably touching a number of these topics in, in this episode. Your traditional management techniques, unfortunately, just don't work with software development or indeed any form of knowledge work. Um, and it's trying to help get that message across and and help people to work out how better to achieve that. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's absolutely great. And I'm I'm really excited to talk about some of those. Uh, but before we do, outside of software development and consulting, are what what else are you interested in or do you enjoy doing? And other than podcasting as well, which a hundred plus episodes, congratulations on that as well. Thank you. Yeah, I, I my initial answer is there's something outside of of, of software development. <laughs> this is new to me. Yeah, okay, um, good point. No, it's a it's a fair question. Um, yeah, I think we've reached a, a stage in our lives, myself and my wife, where we're going through the empty nest syndrome. Uh, we're going through that period where we've got empty nest. Um, oddly, for the second time, because he, he came he came back and lived with us for uh, uh, during the lockdown for the pandemic. So he's gone back out and uh, he's merrily making his way in the world. Um, but now we're sort of trying to work out how we want to um, live our lives. All those things that you think, oh, we could go and do this. We can remodel bits of the house. We can 
we can go on more holidays. But so it is probably that interesting point in our lives where we're trying to rethink what we want to do as um, as a couple. Wow, well, that feels like a, another podcast episode. We, we won't uh, we won't go into that one, but that feels like I'm a really you're a distance. Podcast. I'm assuming you're a distance off that uh, uh, that 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 worry by this by background noise earlier. Yes, yes, we're we're a little distant from from that <laughs> still, and you can you, you people listening probably can't tell, but from you know based on some of the toys that you could probably see in the background, we have like some Legos and there's like a rainbow stuffed animal. We're a little distant from the empty nesting. You know, we're at the, yeah, we, the we, early we, stage. We look like we've got an Ecto one in the background there. That is, and, that uh, is. We're yeah. In, no, we're, I think we've I think we've got one of those in the loft somewhere. Yeah. The the, the lad when he was younger was very much into uh, into all the original Ghostbuster stuff. Yep. Uh, so we bought a lot of stuff across from America at the time. And it's probably still in the loft somewhere. Yeah. We we are working on that. So our my kids love love Legos. And so this is it's kind of a throwback. We've been working on the Ecto one, building it. And we also have a toy one on the ground because they mm. They just want to play with it too. So I was like, well, we can't play with the Lego one, but we can get one to play with too. So yeah, fun stuff. So jumping back into, you know, some of the software development and product management and product development and and all of that, you, you kind of touched on this and I've noticed a theme in the podcast uh, that you've been, that you've been talking about and have touched on both early in uh, your your show, um, and then very very recently, on the idea of uh, both creating value and this difference between a project thinking and a project mindset and a product thinking and a product mindset. So as you approach product development and engagements as a consultant and and new just product development in general, what have you found in helping clients understand? this, these different mindsets and, and understanding, uh, what the difference is between, you know, project thinking and product thinking and actually understanding the value of both what you're delivering and what a product could be versus a project. Yeah, of course. Um, interesting. I think a lot of my thoughts mirror your own from the the work I've seen that you've done. So long-term listeners will probably hear a lot of things they've probably heard from yourself and and your previous guests. Um, But I suppose for me, the the almost anti-project stance for me comes from a level of frustration. Um, I've worked in too many organizations where we're doing stuff to a a strict project um, set up, run by the PMO. We're organizing projects. We're working in Gantt charts. We're trying to utilize resources which is code for people. And we're trying to max them out 100% across multiple projects, basing all of this on guesses and then being told off and being blamed when well-meaning guesses are wrong or someone missed something. So for me, there's a a whole bunch of um, dysfunctions that come from what I'd consider that traditional project management approach of taking siloed activities of building requirements, it going maybe to an architecture team, it then maybe going to a development team, yada, 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 that all of those functions are taking time, they're translating it into their own language, so you're struggling then for people to follow what's being done. We're writing this down, um, and there's a whole reason that there's a massive industry around law. Any contract is open to negotiation. 
and is open to interpretation. So that's going to be true if you're writing down even the simplest of requirements. There's going to be other people's um, understandings and um, bias when they read it. So you're using documents. You're delaying that process until such point as each step is done before it can move on to the next stage. So something may start today, but by the time you've gone through all those processes, you might not, as a requester of it, be able to even see what it looks like until 24 months' time. Now, if we're really lucky and you knew exactly what you wanted today when you asked for it and you're still correct 24 months later, great. But realistically, that doesn't happen. There's just too many factors that go wrong. Uh, we make too many bad assumptions. We make the assumption that we that our requirements are correct, that they're not going to change, that people understand what we've written and all of those bits follow through, that any estimates from any of those parties involved are 100% correct. Not going to be. The word estimate means it's a guess. Yeah. So as such, any estimate will always be wrong. It then becomes just a, ca- a factor of how wrong, rather than people taking an estimate and treating it as a commitment and holding people's feet to the fire and making them work long hours to try and get things through, which then leads to further dysfunction because we're tr- struggling to hit target dates that are on an Excel spreadsheet. We're missing those target dates or going to miss them. So we start cutting corners. We start dropping out quality. Um, we start skipping out on things like security because that's not the ticket item. That's a, oh, we, we kind of need that, but we can come back to it. Um, and it, for me, just drives all those dysfunctions. Whereas product thinking, I think, by design, automatically makes you start thinking about the product and its entire lifetime. A project by its definition is do X by when. So you've got a very narrow time uh, focus. You've got a narrow focus on what you're doing. Whereas if you're thinking about it as a product, you're thinking, okay, I'm going to go and build this product. It has a creation stage. It has a maintenance stage. And at some point, it probably has a destruction phase as well. So if you're building a website that holds customer data, you need to be thinking about all of those things. You need to be thinking about, okay, I can I can stand it up. It's going to cost me 100000 to build it. But then I also need to factor in, what am I going to need to keep doing to it to keep it up to date, keep it secure, keep it safe? And then when I decommission that and I destroy it, what are the costs involved in that? That last one is very rarely thought about, but it is something that's quite important, especially when you think about anything that is now holding personal data. You need to have that exit strategy effectively of knowing how to get rid of that data in the long term. So the minute you've moved across that different way of thinking, it promotes better thought process in terms of where you spend your time and your effort. Because you're thinking for that longer term, when somebody starts saying, oh, we need to do this for quality, you're actually going, actually, that's probably a good shout for the length of the the product. If it's a project and you're short of time, your question will be is, does that help me tick the box? If it doesn't, then it goes into the gold plating or the nice to have column Mm -hmm. and maybe something that gets pushed into, oh, we'll pick that up after it's gone live and all these things that never come back again. I also find specifically around products, you have a much longer lived team, which I think is quite important. By having a a long lived team around it, and that's including the the product manager, the, the, uh, the development staff, the testers, 
even marketing and, and, and sales if they're involved, by having that long-term engagement, you get over a lot of the problems you get with the storming, norming, forming processes that you get with project management where you're taking, if I'm a developer, I could have been working on a project over here yesterday, working on something for you today, and I'm going to work over there tomorrow. That's all cognitive load. I'm not really thinking about your product. I'm just thinking about getting the job done because I haven't got time to. My brain is only so big. I can only hold so much in. Whereas, of course, if we're part of a team and we've got a um, something that we're focused on delivering, we can all bring our best to that and focus on it. You've hit on so many, so many important points that I, I think are absolutely just critical to creating good good products and ultimately good experiences because you know first off if <laughs> you you're just absolutely speaking my language which which i love um you know first off if we look at things as either short term or just in a in a project mindset of you know we have to get it done we end up lying to ourselves about almost everything from like how long it will take to the estimates that we give and then every those lies just kind of like uh, I don't want to say trickle down. They just kind of expand to everybody else. And we have like these just lies going from the estimates of what it will take yeah. to when will we, when we will come back to do other things and all of that. Like it all becomes just lies, like branching out further and further because well, well, it, you get into the, you get into the estimate game. Yeah. And I've worked in environments where this is well known that what will happen is, is a product manager will go to a development team, ask them for an estimate. The development team will sit there, come up with a number, double it, because they know that that, the, that they're going to get, have their feet held to the fire. Yeah. The project manager will then double that again. And when it goes to the actual uh, business stakeholder, they will probably sit there and go, right, well, it's a quarter of that or a third. Because they know that everybody is playing the game. Because, yeah. And it comes back, it's, it's, it's a culture thing for me, of a blame-based culture of why didn't you do this when you said you should have done? You made a commitment. No, we made an estimate. Now, if you want an honest answer, which I think, I, you know, the developers shouldn't have doubled their estimate. They should give an honest answer. And I think that's the professional thing to do. But you caveat that with, this is my best guess based on what I know today. And that way it starts and take away from this idea that you want honesty and trust within those relationships rather than a metric slash blame culture. Yeah. And that gets, and I think that gets to, to your, your further point of, you know, what is it that we're doing with those things? Because if, if the culture and if the whole point of it ultimately continues to come back down to, we are, we're running something on a timeline and it's all about getting this thing out the door and we just, it needs to be built and we care only about it being built by one month or three months, and that's the the whole point, then everybody starts to focus only on that thing. You know, we estimated that it was a three-month project, and all of a sudden, you know, it wasn't originally an estimate, it became a commitment, and now everybody's feet are held to the fire for that. And so it no longer becomes about what that thing was supposed to be or do or, you know, what the goal of it was, it becomes about delivery of Precisely. that thing. And Precisely. we lose, lo we lose focus on the outcomes we're trying to achieve. Right. And we're focusing on the output, Yep. which I think is actually taken from uh, your article. <laughs> 
Yeah. And, and the whole value of it becomes not, I don't want to say pointless, but we lose, uh, we, we lose the narrative of like, why are we doing these things and, and the culture. And I feel like it becomes almost like a spiraling culture thing of, are we, are we just continuing to build things for the sake of building them? And, uh, if we're being measured on when we can get them out, then, you know, certainly teams will focus on getting them out as opposed to, are we actually delivering something that matters to people and that matters in, in a way that people care about. And going back to some of the points that you made, you start to cut corners on all of the other things that ultimately well, could potentially matter a lot. You cut corners on the quality and the security and the, the longevity, like how maintainable is this thing over time, which you, you start to deal with in a lot of different ways. I, I'm sure you have, have dealt with this in, in your, in your, practice and in, in things that you've seen is if you care more about delivering something quickly, the people that come after you have to deal with the repercussions of that in how long and how easy it is to maintain something like that. So I guess I'll, I'll turn kind of the question around and, and what have been some of the repercussions that you have seen to some of these different mindsets? Yeah, a lot of this comes down to the dangers of focusing people and targeting people on the wrong thing. We've certainly seen in the past that we've tried to manage software developers via various metrics. Um, maybe it's lines of code, and then we realize that what they're doing is they're just writing rubbish to meet a target. Um, so you've got to be very careful on what you're targeting people to do because it drives dysfunctions. It's like the commission, uh, the dangers commissions on salespeople. If your commission is for them to sell, that's all they're going to focus on. And they will focus on that to the exclusion of, am I selling the right thing? Am I selling the correct thing for the customer? Am I selling the correct thing for the company long-term? If they're not incentivized on that and they just sell, uh, incentivized on that sale, that's what they're going to focus on. And that's unfortunately something that has to be taken higher up in levels of management in terms of understanding what you think you're focusing somebody on is causing dysfunctions if you're not careful. So, Going back to your original point in terms of, yeah, when people are pushed to cut corners or encouraged, shall we say, to hit targets, and let's be honest, most of these targets are arbitrary dates pulled out of the air. We can talk about if there's proper dates uh, and how to handle those later, but if people are being forced to try and hit a specific date, then yes, they're cut out things that make it difficult going, going forwards. So I've certainly had issues where I've gone to client sites where I'm being asked to look at a system that's got configuration changes that have been made directly onto the live servers, but has never been recorded anywhere else. It's never been recorded back into source control. So if someone comes along and releases the software again, because someone's made direct changes to that live system, it overwrites them. We've lost that change. Now, to be honest, that change may have been for a very good reason. It may have been that it was an emergency fix that happened in the middle of the night. And it had to be done in that way to get the business operational again. But we still need the discipline to being able to go back and make sure that we update our previous records and we can re-go back through that cycle again. One of the big bugbears I find is, is, is people's reluctance to write uh, something called unit tests, uh, automated tests for software code. It's commonly held, unfortunately, by a number of people that should know better that it's a waste of time. It's putting too much time on trying to test something rather than actually getting the job done. 
And I've, I've honestly seen it being described as gold plating. But if you take a car, all the components in that car will have been tested repeatedly. I would certainly hope that someone has tested the seatbelts uh, set up and make sure it's secure. And all those kinds of components will be tested. Now, if we invest the time up front as we're building this software so that we have these automated tests, then we gain the benefit on that longer-term perspective. And this is one of those clear ones that makes a difference if you're thinking about it from a project perspective with a very short timeline to a product perspective. You may cut the corner on a, on a, on a project going, well, I don't see the need to write those tests. And to be honest, maybe there isn't. The developer has just written them. Uh, it's just written the code. They're close to it. They know what it's doing. Where the benefit comes in the project, uh, sorry, in the product, is in six months, 12 months, 24 months time. And even if it's a different team that's maintaining it, those tests are still there. They can be run to act as a safety net to make sure that we haven't changed something inadvertently in our latest change yeah. that is going to suddenly start selling things at below cost. So there's a, there's various things that I've seen in the past similar to that in terms of where you can see people have cut the corners and are paying the price. Whereas one of the other projects I worked on recently, we started with the mindset very much of everything will be automatically tested. Everything will be a push-button deployment. Everything will be, from me finishing my line of code, a seamless a transition through to production as possible. Now, that system is one that I can put hand on heart and be confident that I can go in at any point in time, make a change, and I know that it's not going to affect the production use of it because it has a series of tests built into it. And I've got such a level of flexibility that we can go and make changes almost on the fly because of it, yeah. as opposed to going through this cycle of, well, I'm going to make a test, I'm going to make a change, but because I've got no automation there, I've got to go and give it to this QA department that is too busy. That will sit on their shelf for, for six weeks. And by the time they come back to me and tell me there's a bug, I've completely forgotten what the hell I was doing. <laughs> I'm not sure whether I've answered your question during that. Yeah, no, that that's great. How How have you helped either teams or clients that you've worked with shift perspective uh, you know from you know, from being more focused on you know getting either getting dates or estimates or, or you know just getting some of the projects done to you know focusing more on what is the long-term product look like and what is the long-term value that, that we're trying to provide and you know what is the the longer term focus how have you helped accomplish some of that in some of the work that you've done a lot of it's education uh, and actually just sitting down and, and, and talking through some of these things. Software development is a fairly young industry. It's it's realistically only really been running since the 70s. So as an industry, it's, it's, it's immature is probably a little bit unfair, but it certainly hasn't got the maturity levels um, that other industries have. And I think it's also going through a stage where, and this isn't just software development, it's any form of knowledge work where the work you're doing is is thinking. There's been a lot of changes in, in management styles over the last 20, 30, 40 years in terms of trying to understand how the best, how best to get those knowledge workers and the best out of them. Um, it's very much moving away from the tailorism approach of if I sweat them or I pay them more, they'd do X many things per hour faster, or they'd 
it's 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 almost well is it's a different mindset because you're looking at completely different motivations you're looking at completely different ways of working so in terms of when i'm working with people i like to ideally start looking at look you as a business are treating it probably as an order taker Mm -hmm. it you're probably actually set up as an order taker we've done that to ourselves we've done that as our industry to to effectively act as we're here, we do all of this, make a request, put it through the system, and so on. Yeah. We've done that because that's how we've mimicked existing systems. Mm-hmm. And as I say, we're learning. It's new. And unfortunately, that's we're now learning that there are better ways of doing that. Um, it's obviously not new. Um, for the last 20 years, we've been doing agile and different ways of bringing work through software development and realizing that there are better ways of, of doing these things rather than it being a order-taking mentality. So first thing is trying to get that education piece, trying to at least explain the benefits um, and explain the differences in thinking. So some of the stuff we've already talked about in terms of you know very well you're going to be writing a requirements document. And when when you did that last time, did that change while while you were developing your software? Did it actually come out as you expected it to? How quickly could you actually see some software to look at? You know, you can you can quite easily start probing based on past experiences in terms of, well, does that seem right to you? The first time you're going to see this is 24 months in. Does this seem right to you that you're expected to know precisely down to the last pixel exactly what it should look like in two years' time? Yeah. There is, there is uh, a number of factors there that you have to get through. You have to get through the concerns that the management team have. There is a concern that, oh, if we're getting rid of this Gantt chart, how do we know that the project's on track? Well, you don't anyway. The Gantt chart is largely, it's a, it's a lie. It's a yeah. fabrication. It's a, well, we put this up and it's something to talk about. When you see so many projects that are being reported on monthly that are month in, month out, green, 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 month before it's meant to go in, red. What's happened? Because you've got those historical places, you can start seeing that. It helps, of course, that we've got some big players in the industry as well in terms of being able to talk about how the likes of Facebook, Spotify, the the big players, how they're starting to, uh, or have been for quite some time now, actually, been working in terms of the development. And you also then need to talk to the development team because some of these, if they're used to this mentality of, I get a document, I do stuff, I pass it on, there can be quite a culture shock for them. There's quite a change. Um, if you think about the stereotypical image of a, a developer, they sit in a back room. Uh, they, they, their whole job is to turn caffeine into code. Mm-hmm. Headphones on, don't talk to anyone. And I think that does a disservice for everyone. But we can, we can talk about that. But the education piece and the evangelism piece is key. But there's also then just the, right, well, let's pick something up and let's do a small piece on it and let's try it. Let's work as a team and try some of these more agile uh, practices. It'd be nice to be able to go full agile and implement a Scrum or a Lean or a DevOps process. But you can take some of the principles, some of the little bits of it, and start adding them in and sprinkling them and going, well, that's helped. Yeah. So, for example, if I was going into a team that would, that we currently doing a lot of um, waterfall style, I'd probably start talking to them about, right, well, maybe we could bring some of those tests earlier. Could we get the QA team to write some of those tests up, even if they're writing it in English? And then let's build those in as unit tests so that we can see the quality. 
when we're building stuff, is there a way that we can say, right, well, what have we got at the end of this week that we can demo? What can we show the stakeholder this week? And I think that's all my, that's, and it actually happened with one team uh, that I worked with a while ago. They'd been working on a, on a replacement website and the BA team, there'd been two of them for six months uh, writing many, many, many requirements and putting them into uh, a system called JIRA, which I won't talk about because I'm not fond of it. Um, so they, they spent six months writing this. They'd had then a development team of some really good people, actually, some really good individual developers, shall we mm-hmm. say, that were picking and choosing bits that they wanted to do. But because they weren't coordinated of what they were doing and they were just working through this massive, great shopping list of things. But when I turned up there and uh, and, and asked to take a look at it because they were struggling and they were going, well, we don't really know where we are on the project. I said, right, well, show me it. What have you built? And they couldn't. They built lots of bits. They built lots of components. Yep. But none of it they could actually plumb together and go, well, this is what it looks like. Right. Well, let's stop. Let's take the thing that's closest to completion and let's get that done. And then let's look at it and go, is this what we wanted? Because unless you're getting that feedback, you've got no idea until you do the whole thing. So it's taking some of those little processes. And I do think that demo one is a brilliant one to put in. Um, Obviously trying to keep people focused on the job is great if you can keep them on a single product rather than splitting them across. But it's introducing those simple little principles. And ultimately it's, it's it's trying to build that through into the development practices. Once you start getting those into some sort of level in the development practice where people are seeing, okay, there's there's some benefits doing this. Um, we're still working in a waterfall model, um, but using some agile practices, which is often where most agile implementations end, <laughs> then you can start going, right, well, can we now start engaging the stakeholders, the leadership more? because we've built this rapport by being able to sit down and demo stuff with them, because we've got a relationship with them, because we could, we know their name. You know, we're not just passing them in the hall and, and, and doffing our cap to them. We're actually able to talk to them. We can start, again, going through that evangelization process of how about we look at this? How about we try and do that? Yeah, no, I think that's that's spot on. So starting, starting with the education, uh, both at like the, the top down, perspective, like leadership executives and the bottom up, you know, teams have to be bought in and getting them on board and actually practicing some of the, the principles and, and implementing, taking it in small bites and then actually showing the value that it's providing and, and demoing that. And then building on all of those wins so that you can actually show that, Hey, this is working better than what we were doing before and why we should not only continue, but why we can't go backwards to, you know, taking huge requirement documents or, you know, huge, like, like you said, the lie of the big Gantt chart, because it's, <laughs> <laughs> you, we can do it, but mm. you still don't even doing it. You still don't know where your project stands because this is a lie. So whether you have it or not, like you still don't know the truth. I, I absolutely love that. That's, that's absolutely spot on. I think that's great. You, you touched there on uh, a number of different things, but I wanted to dive in a little bit about, you know, working with, you know, some of the, the non-technical and the technical people working together and how, how do we best accomplish that? Um, you know, you've had experience, you know, working with 
a, a lot of engineering teams and, you know, also working across leadership teams and, you know, probably a number of product managers and, and other folks involved in the process. You know, what are the best ways? And you mentioned, you know, part of the education, but bridging some of that technical and non-technical gap between, you know, some of the people, especially working very closely with product development teams. Yeah, I think um, obviously uh, the the main one is pizza. Um, <laughs> if if we can get a steady supply of pizza, then everyone's happy. Um, I think part of it comes down to, or, or a good chunk of it comes down to um, things that uh, come out of motivation. So, I assume you're uh, you've uh, aware of the book Drive by Daniel Pink. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So I'd assume you've probably covered it a number of times, but he talks about those intrinsic motivators, Mm -hmm. that mastery, that autonomous and purpose. So if you're bringing a group of disparate people together, they will have their own desires, their their wants, what drives them. Now, some of it may be as simple as they just want to be able to pay the mortgage. (laughs) But if we can instill that sense of purpose in that team, that helps no end to start getting people heading in the same direction. Um, so being able to provide that team with that autonomy to be able to take that product forward, the purpose of why that product is there in the first place, what it's trying to solve, and giving them the freedom to gain mastery in it, we start driving those intrinsic motivators. So for me, a lot of it starts there if we can. In terms of them working together, there's obviously lots of pseudo practices in terms of the little bits and pieces we can do to, to grease the wheels as we go. But if we've got everybody heading the same direction and singing or arguing probably <laughs> then, uh, strongly for the same thing, they might have different approaches to achieving it, but they're all wanting to head to that same point with that purpose and that autonomy, then you, you've, you've got a common place to work from. Obviously, off the back of that, you want to start working on things like trust. Uh, They need to have psychological safety. Uh, They need to feel that they can, as a team, fall out with each other. I know this is something you wanted to talk about, but in terms of being able to have disagreements about the best way to get to the top of the mountain. We all know we want to get to the top of the mountain. We know what the mountain looks like. We know where it is, but we may have different views as to how we want to achieve that. And it's trying to make sure that we've got that psychological safety. And again, coming away from that blame culture, that everybody feels safe to volunteer their ideas, no matter how stupid they are. And trust me, I'm normally the one that brings the stupid (laughs) ideas to the table. No matter how stupid they are, because they expand our thinking, it it can sometimes prompt the most interesting ideas. So in terms of being able to have that, in terms of having that, that safety and that ability to 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 uh, talk to people, and then be in a position where we then want to, as a team, be prepared to review ourselves. Scrum has the the, the retrospective meeting, for example, which I think is an invaluable piece of uh, of of self help for a team. A team will meet every sprint and go as a team, how are we working together? And you do use that to uncover all sorts of things. What's working well? What do we want to try next? What are our problems? And it can be difficult to raise things when, say, for example, if it is a personality clash, but that's something you do almost want to surface. Well, you do want to surface. It's one of the beauties of uh, that retrospective um, meeting within Scrum. It brings those problems to the fore. You're encouraged to talk about them rather than them being swept under the carpet and ignored. 
And that's where you get the problems. If you can got a problem, face it, deal with it, move on, rather than just turning away. Yeah. I think if you combine that then with with a learning culture, um, having very much of an experimental mindset as a team, you're having these retrospectives and you're going, right, well, we, we tried this working this way last for the last week. Did it work? How many thumbs up? How many thumbs down? Do you want to do more of that? Or do you want to try something different? Last week, we talked about how we were going to get to the top of this mountain. We came up with three or four different ideas. We experimented with that one. What does the data show us? Do we need now to go back and experiment with one of the other ideas? By having the ability to be open, honest, prepared to experiment, be open to failure and see it as a learning path. If you've got those mentalities coming into the people that are walking into the room as part of that team, then you're onto a winner straight away. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's exactly, exactly right. And uh, almost encouraging the, uh, I don't want to say like antagonism, but like encouraging the, <laughs> so, like some form of antagonism or dissent or uh, just like various viewpoints so that it makes it clear that that sort of thing is, is very welcome in in the discussion and it's not meant to be like a consensus. Like you're not, you're not there for a single view and everybody forms a consensus around it. It's meant to be like, we want ideas. Like you were saying, we want to experiment. Um, have you, have you had experience with a team or teams that do that really well? Like what have been some of your experiences on like really good examples of that? Um, yeah. Interestingly, each individual teams can fluctuate because we're people. Yeah. <laughs> so I've had teams in the past, which you can sit them in a room one week and they don't say a word. Mm -hmm. uh, a week later, they're almost at each other's throats. You sort of like, <laughs> you, you, you almost need to get to a point where you, you actually do get them into an octagon and just uh, let them at it for a bit. But you, you get um, ebbs and flows. Mm -hmm. But over time, you, 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 you see those teams as they start to build that trust, as they start to build that, that, belief in actually no they're not going to just laugh at me they they, they they become more prepared to volunteer information and that may be negative in terms of that information is negative mm -hmm. in terms of i don't like the way we're doing this but that's golden yeah. how long has that person been sat there on that and keeping quiet about it how long have they been really concerned that the uh, that the person in the corner that, that takes over the room and we're just listening to to the the highest paid person's opinion um that hippo mindset yep. how long have they been really upset with the direction we're taking how long have they been concerned that this isn't going to work yeah so the more trust you can build um but yeah certainly individual teams some work better at that than others initially and it takes time to get to a good place where everybody can be comfortable with that yeah i i definitely agree with that and it it definitely helps to to have at least a few people who are, are willing to, if not go in and poke and prod, at least be the ones who who are willing to like throw out dumb suggestions and, and be like, hey, this is going to be a dumb suggestion, but you know, have we thought about doing something stupid? I feel like I do a lot of dumb suggestions in a lot of meetings, but um, but, that, that, but that is good because it does yeah. help provoke that. And if you read any of the sort of like the agile coaching um, literature, they will say do that. Yeah, you know, prompt the question that I'll start asking stuff. I know that you, when you, it's a slight tra uh, transition, but a couple episodes back, you talked to, uh, was it Jen's 
Goatsman. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because he was talking about feeling more comfortable asking questions. Yeah. And it's interesting because you find as you get older, you do feel more comfortable of, I'm going to ask a daft question here yep. because I want to see what the answer is. And it might be you're asking it because you know the answer, but somebody else you're fairly certain doesn't know. Yep. But sometimes it's just useful for the room to have that question answered. And interestingly, if you think about consultancy, so much of what a consultant does is basically just go in and ask really, really daft questions because nobody else is prepared to ask them. That's, I feel like that's, that is so true. Or everybody may know the answer, but nobody feels like they have the ability to ask the question or to question like the, the leadership or the team. And so like, uh, or those in power, those in charge. And so having somebody come in, like you said, and ask the, what feels like the very obvious question and just like start to shake things up and, and say, why are things like this? Or have you considered this thing? The thing that maybe everybody was thinking but nobody had the ability to come in and ask or probe on until somebody was given like that explicit authority to say, well, like, we're, we're culturally, con we're culturally conditioned yeah. not to look stupid. We, <laughs> we, we don't want to go into that room and look stupid. We don't, we've had that, you know, from, from, from the playground upwards in terms of, we don't want to be the person that everyone's sitting there laughing at because we've asked the really stupid question. So it's, it's ingrained in our psyche in the way that we've been brought up in terms of school and university life. We don't want to be that person that's laughed at. And unfortunately it's, 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 it's the age that brings the, uh, the, the confidence yep. to be able to do that half the time in terms of, you know, what, I'm going to ask the stupid question because more often than not, I ask a stupid question and everyone else in the room goes, Oh, we assume that had already been answered. <laughs> oh, and suddenly you're in a completely different conversation because yeah. what you believed was already a done deal, already a, a, a established, it's actually now turned on its head. So certainly it's, it's, it's not just you going into that room and asking the question. You're also then by virtue of asking the stupid question, giving other, others permission to also ask. I, I think that's, that it's exactly right. And I think probably if not one of, if not the most critical, like one of the most critical to, to making good teams and good meetings is like uncovering what the, the right problems are and asking the right questions. And often that is asking either the dumb question or just trying to turn things on their head through, through some of those probing difficult questions sometimes. And sometimes they're just the stupid, obvious questions that, that other people either don't think to ask or are afraid to ask because it it feels like you know they're they're too obvious or too dumb <laughs> for for somebody to 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 be putting out there but they can be really really important going along those same lines you know we've talked about a number of things in creating good product development teams uh you know creating that psychological safety the the motivation um the alignment and things like that are there are there other things that come to mind in in some of your experience in creating uh, best practices or or just creating really great product development teams or or things that you've seen that are uh, frameworks or principles or just traits or characteristics of really great product development teams? 
I'm always a little bit nervous when we talk about best practice. Yep. Um, if I'm honest, the, for me, best practice is constantly trying to seek better practices. Um, and, and that's probably the key thing that, that I like to see is there is that continual level of trying to improve. And it's very much going back to where I was talking about the, um, the scrum and the retrospective mm-hmm. in terms of the team constantly looking to improve how they do the work. So not just making sure that they are building the right thing, but building the thing right. Yep. So looking at how their practices and, and, and how they work together. So for me, the key thing is, is, is actually making sure that we're using things like that retrospective to make sure that we're raising problems and uh, improving them. So certainly if, we, if we're going to talk about best practice, yeah, start there because it will drive further things. Mm-hmm. Um, at a more macro level, there's obviously all sorts of bits and pieces in terms of things that can help a team work better. I think the very fact that we're on a podcast that's talking about product thinking, I think that's a really, really key thing. If it was any other podcast, it would probably be quite high in the list of things I'll talk about because (laughs) by working in that product mindset, you're suddenly changing the dynamic in terms of how the team's formed, how they think, how they communicate, how they establish norms. Um, Because you've got a product, and I'm assuming you have a permanent product team wrapped around it, then you 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 instantly start addressing so many of these functions that we talked about earlier on with that with that with that project mindset. I'm just trying to think what else we could add to it as a as a as a thing. Oh, yeah, I know that um, a couple episodes back uh, on paradox uh, paradox of choice, Evil was talking about the the value of getting rid of things, yeah. um, which is a very overlooked practice. The less you have in terms of what your software does and is sat there being idle. You, you, the the lower cost, the easier it is to maintain. The easier is it to it is to work with. Makes cognitive load easier for the developers. They can be probably more agile, more quick, uh, more quick. I say, entirely terrible use of English. It's quicker <laughs> to do stuff. Unfortunately, my son is a sub editor, so I never let let him read any of my writing. Um, but it's interesting because um, currently Microsoft are, and unfortunately Microsoft due to their nature, due to the, where they are in the industry, have had to keep a lot of things alive for backwards compatibility. They've just started a process of trying to remove, I forget, is it, is it um, Excel 4 macros mm-hmm. out of the, the office estate? There's something, I think it's something like 25 to 30-year-old technology, and they're only now trying to remove it out. It's a source of all sorts of security vulnerabilities yep. and probably one of the main sources that people are getting vulnerabilities from. But because it, they, they've had to keep it for backwards compatibility, they must have cost them a fortune to maintain that. And, of course, it's now costing them reputational damage as well because, of course, there's, there's problems being found in it. So the wider the landscape you have, the more you have in terms of that uh, risk, the cost. Um, so many people think about, oh, I must have hundreds of features, which is exactly what Eva and yourself were saying that episode. Let, we must have the highest feature count. Well, do you? Does it actually, all those things that you've got in there, do you actually need them? When you look at Microsoft um, Word, for example, most people won't use anywhere near the full level of features. Even the most powerful user probably uses about 10%, but there's so many features in there that it'd be almost impossible for anyone to sit and rewrite it because there's just that many of them. Yep. But they still have to be maintained. They still have to be looked after. Going back to where, where I was talking right at the start about having that 
product mindset of both the creation, the maintenance, and eventually the, the, the destruction, they still have a cost associated with them. So a good practice is having the regular sit down and going, what can we prove? Do we need this? Is it used? Is it valuable? And I think that's a valuable exercise for, for any product anywhere. But certainly if you can then choose to remove it, you remove that overhead of maintenance, cognitive load, um, and all the stuff that goes around keeping it ticking. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely spot on. Uh, the more the more focused you can be, the better your product and experience will be, and the easier time you will have as a team in not only building a better product, but actually creating more and quicker. And and I know I've dealt with that in almost every product team I've ever been on is how can we focus more and why do we have, why do we have so much stuff in here? Like there's just, what, what can we get rid of? Uh, we have, we have those conversations frequently. Like, do we, is this valuable? How do we know it's valuable? And if, if it's not, what do we need to do to get rid of it? Because like we, we shouldn't be maintaining as much as we are if it's not providing the right level of value. So that's, that's very, very real. I know, I know it's real. Awesome. Well, let me ask if there's anything else that uh, you wanted to to kind of add in there before I, I kind of throw my last question at you. The only other thing I had on uh, that I just wanted to touch on was, was we've talked a lot about how to, uh, about the difference between project and product and different mindsets. The one thing I want people to really think about is regardless of what role you are, feel, feel that you're able to learn. Um, some people, especially in uh, the product management space, feel that they're stepping outside of their lane if they start getting into that technical aspect, if they start understanding what the, the developers are doing. And the same is true of developers as well. They, they feel that, that, they're, they're, that it's inappropriate for them to start doing that. Don't. Give yourself permission to learn. It helps everyone. It helps you. It helps the people you're working with. Obviously, don't go into a room and tell a seasoned developer that's been doing it for 50 years when you've read one article last night on how to do something. There's almost certainly they're not going to take it with the best of graces. But really, honestly, give yourself permission to learn. Um, I'm insane when it comes to the amount of learning I do. I spend a lot of time listening to a lot of different podcasts. I'll sometimes pick a random subject to start going down because it intrigues me. It's interesting. So I've, I've done various things over the past. I've, I've decided, oh, I'm going to go and look at this framework. That's related to my work. That's great. Look at that technology. Understand that. Oh, you know what? I quite fancy understanding how 3D models work. I'm going to understand how to use Blender, which is a software package for 3D models. Oh, I know, I'm going to go and watch this whole set of courses on cybersecurity and ethical hacking. It's never a job I'm going to do, but I find that, you know, it for me, understanding things and getting that even a base level of understanding across a broad spectrum makes me better at what I do. It makes it easier for me to engage with people and be able to converse and build that level of trust. Yep. So if there's anything I'd, I'd add to it, it's just a you know, feel, feel free to learn. And if anyone ever wants to ask things, feel free to reach out to me or any other techie. They might seem miserable buggers with uh, the headphones on sat in the corner, <laughs> but they will, they will more 
more than, more than happily take you through stuff. Whether it makes any sense afterwards, I can't promise that, but we certainly try. Oh, that's awesome. Um, no, th- that's, uh, that's really great. Uh, last question. And then we'll, we'll, uh, well, not actually last question, but favorite <laughs> moment of your, of your career so far, uh, anything that kind of stands out to you? Oh, that's a difficult one. I suppose for me, it's, it's, I'm going to chicken out a little bit and say, it's all those little micro moments mm-hmm. where you've just gone, that's worked well. I'm really, really happy with that. And I find I get that quite often with software development because it's a problem solving domain. When you've spent some time thinking about something and you've you've pondered it and you've experimented with it, suddenly the pieces start to fall into place. It's that just that wonderful moment where you're going, yes. And the world suddenly makes sense for, you know, the the five or 10 minutes before something else happens. But (laughs) during that time, you have that, that level of peace and, I saw a, um, a sort of uh, a meme once of this 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 couple uh, in bed and the big speech bubble and the wife's going, he's ignoring me. He didn't talk to me during dinner. He, he, he's 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 not talking. He's being really off. Is is our marriage over? And a little speech bubble from from the from, or thought bubble from from the chap and he's going, why doesn't my code compile? <laughs> And that's the that's the converse of, of that problem because because it's a problem solving activity. It's very difficult for us to step away from it as developers. I find that I end up thinking about problems um, when I'm driving, when I'm walking, uh, evenings when I am with family. So when I get that converse thing of excellent, I've solved it. I, I come home almost, I, I feel as if I should be able to walk through the door and it should be as if Jesus has walked into <laughs> before everyone. And there should be sort of like a, 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 a chorus of cherubs, um, which unfortunately doesn't actually happen, but it does in my head. <laughs> uh, I, yes, that, that should be the way it is. It should be more like, it should be like that more often, uh, certainly, especially after some days right well this has been a really really great conversation uh i feel like it could probably keep going for a lot longer but really appreciate your thoughts and a lot of your experience uh where can people go to find out more about um what you do or see some of the things that uh you've done uh your podcast uh reach out to you as well yeah so uh in terms of the podcasts uh, that's the better roi from software development um, that can be accessed from my website red-folder.com or wherever you procure your your, your podcasts from so um, that touches on some of the things we've been on uh, about here in terms of obviously um, very similar vein to yourself in, in terms of that, that thinking but also on some episodes um, I will pick up a technical top, uh, subject and do my best to try to explain it in a way that hopefully make some form of sense to the the non-technical so i've done things previously on technologies like docker kubernetes continuous integration continuous development now if you don't understand what those are go listen to the podcast hopefully they make a bit more sense after that so going back to what i said earlier if you do have a question on technical subjects really good to hear about those because they go into the podcast as as a as an episode um but yeah, in terms of if you just want to reach out to me, probably the best place is LinkedIn. So I'll provide you a, 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 a link for the show notes. Okay, perfect. 
Um, yeah. We'll, so we'll put the link to the podcast in the show notes and the link to, to Mark's LinkedIn in the show notes as well. Uh, definitely check out that podcast. It's got, I haven't listened to all the episodes cause there's over a hundred now. Um, but I was going, I've gone through a number of them. Uh, they're, they're shorter. They're like, uh, between like typically between like 10 and 20 minutes, I believe. Um, yeah, I, I try to keep it to that if I can. Yeah. Um, I think in total now there's something like there's over 21 hours, which yep. for which I apologize to <laughs> everybody's ears. Uh, I'm, but, a, I'm afraid face, face for radio and uh, voice for mine. <laughs> no, they're really, really good. So uh, definitely check those out. There are a lot of, of great topics on there. Um, so we will put the link in the show notes. Before we end, uh, I guess officially the last question, we typically end with either a product shout out or gripe. So I don't know if you've brought anything that you are using right now that you are really enjoying or really disliking that uh, you want to give a shout out or a gripe to. I'll do an enjoying and a gripe, hey. if that's okay. Yes. So enjoying, um, I'm quite enjoying uh, an app called Duolingo. Uh, yeah. I'm not sure if you come across that. It's a, it's a language learning. Yep. Uh, for some weird reason, uh, I decided I'm going to try and see how far I can get with learning Korean. Oh, wow. Um, if I'm perfectly honest, a lot of this is purely because they seem to watch a lot of Korean episodes on Netflix. I was going to ask if it was in, if you've been watching some of the Netflix shows and that. Yes, precisely. Okay. Um, I've not, I've not started on, uh, on, on squid games yet. Okay. Um, but yeah, so I found myself watching a lot of their, uh, a lot of Korean uh, episodes. Um, and if I'm honest, the likelihood of me being able to learn and to be able to listen to or speak uh, Korean is low. Um, I've tried to do French and Spanish in the past. And if I'm honest, I'm not great with languages, just how my brain works. But it's an enjoyable exercise. And as a product, it's really good in terms of it has a lot of gamification in it um, and it leads you through. Um, there's obviously a uh, paid for as well as a, a, a free um, product. The free product for me works fine. Yep. It's not something I'm going to spend lots of time on. So I'm happy to to have the interruptions, to uh, uh, to have to wait for time to catch up. But they do it in such a nice way. It doesn't feel as if, while they're obviously pushing the paid product, they're doing it in such a, a, a non-aggressive manner for me that I'm perfectly happy to use that product as it is. It's great. Nice. Gripe-wise, um, we in the UK have a um, TV service called Sky, mm-hmm. um, where it's it's not a cheap service. Uh, it's originally based on satellite uh, delivery. Um when you go and use their sort of catch-up service and you ask to download an episode of something that has been on previously, it will default to trying to download it in high definition. Now, you pay extra for high definition. So even though there are two versions of the package, one is high definition and one is standard definition, if you go, oh, I want to watch that, that looks really good, I'll, I'll, I'll click the button to, mm-hmm. to, to start downloading that, it will basically stop you dead. It will basically go, oh, you can't download that. You're on the wrong format. You can't download in, 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 in HD. Well, you know I haven't got HD. Why are you not defaulting straight to, to standard definition? Do you have to go through the rigmarole of going, click right, change format, down, click the other one, take it, then download it again? And even then, you still get a banner message coming up saying, oh, this isn't in your subscription, even though you've gone through the, 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 the hurdles, which... It's obvious why they're doing it. It's mm. obvious that they're trying to make it a little bit more complicated just so that you go, you know what, I'm going to just pay for the for, for the extra subscription. Yep. But it seems such a frustration. By all means, I've got no problems with you telling me 
that this is available on HD and you could get it if you do this. But every time I want to go and download something, it just feels a bad product experience and almost feels, whereas um, something like Duolingo, which they, they push the adverts in quite nicely, yep. I think, into the flow, this is stopping you. And you have to specifically go around it to get back to it, which I think is is quite a product fail for me. Yeah, I <clears throat> I strongly dislike those dark UX decisions that people make, and even when they're there's the dark by dis, by choice, and then there's the dark just by like somewhat incompetence, but they're all dark to me in some way or another where you make it either really difficult or really horrible to use your app or um, you make it, like you were saying, just impossible. I, that drives me absolutely crazy. But good on Duolingo for, for making it just nice to use the free version. It, it bothers me when people like really push hard on the paid version. I, I've had I have had to stop using a number of apps because they make it so bad to use the free version versus the paid. And it's like, I don't, I'm just using it casually. I just want the free version and, and they make it so horrible to use the free version. And you're like, all right, I'm done. I'm not paying. So we're just done here. But that's a shout out. Good shout out to Duolingo. That, you have to check that one out. Um, cool. Well, I've got, I'll give a shout out. We just ended the soccer season for my kids, which is, it just, it turned cold here real quick. So now we're, we went fall to winter, but we purchased these chairs. They're called click chairs and they are very, they are like folding chairs. They're very small and they are they're really, really great. Uh, so if you, if you have to go to a lot of like outdoor events and watch, like go watch your kids play mm -hmm. soccer, uh, carrying big folding chairs, it was just a massive pain. And so we saw somebody with these very, very small they're like the size of literally the size of a water bottle. And so, really? yeah, they are just super small and they fold up really small and then they pop out. You sit down and have like a nice comfortable seat. And so we got some of those and they are just, they are really, really great. And we saw somebody using them and like, what are those chairs? They, they fold up so small and they showed them to us. And then we started using them and we've had other people be like, what are those chairs you're using? They look way better than these big bulky chairs, you know, the folding chairs that people <laughs> carry in. And so it's like one of these just people see them and they're like, oh man, that's way better than carrying, you know, my big camping chair to watch kids play see, soccer. Now what you need to do is buy them in bulk. And just happen to have them about just, you when you when, when when you're at these. Oh, do you really like it? Oh, I just happen to have a couple spare. You're like, yeah, I actually actually here, here <laughs> right here, I I can I can hook you up. They're not <laughs> yeah they're not inexpensive, but um, totally worth it for us. I mean we we go to multiple games each week, and I'm sure that's only going to increase. So anyway, shout out to them for making something that we literally saw at one of our soccer games and we're like, we, we have to have that because it they are so like small. Excellent investment. Yeah. Excellent investment. Yep. Yeah. All right. Well, that is it. So again, Mark really appreciate it. This has been a great conversation. Um, absolutely loved it. You, you got on all, all of the topics that I just love to, to talk about with, with product and product development. So it was great. Absolutely great talking to you and look forward to hopefully talking again more in the future. Excellent. Thank you. All right. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Thanks again for listening. If you like the show, 
be sure to follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You can follow the show on Twitter at prod by design. That's prod underscore by underscore design. You can follow me at Kyle Larry Evans on Twitter as well. If you want more product conversation, check out my newsletter, Product Thinking at productthinking.cc. You can follow me on Medium at Kyle Larry Evans as well, or check out my Medium publication, uh, Product by Design. Thanks again.